Good morning, Redeemer. What a joy to be together on a Sunday, a Sunday morning. Remember, Jesus is alive uh, in our midst. Uh, it's, it's great to see you. Um, even as we know, uh, many of our friends, brothers and sisters might be separated from us, isolating, sick. That's why I'm going to pray now for uh, some who aren't here with us and I to pray for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are with us. Uh, we, we pray for our brothers and sisters who can't be here today, those still finding their schedules or those having to work. We pray for those who are isolating or sick. Would you heal them? Would you bring them back to us? And would they know your presence, your encouragement even today? And Father, we pray that you would speak to us now by your word. You tell us that everything written beforehand was written for our encouragement, that we might have hope. So, Lord, would you give us hope today by this word to us in Zechariah. It's in Jesus' good and great name that we pray. Amen. Well, the first time I applied to seminary uh, to train to be a pastor, I was rejected. That may not fill you with confidence this morning, but, but stay with me. Uh, I, I was rejected. I, I loved Jesus. I knew that the world needed to hear about Jesus. I wanted to get out there as soon as possible and make him known. But when I applied for seminary, I was told no, or at least not yet. Uh, they said, you're, you're still too young. Try growing up a bit and, th and then come back. They said, you're, you're too awkward. Uh, you're, you're too awkward. You're too shy. You're, you're not really clear in the way you communicate. Uh, come back. And this obviously was quite disappointing. Uh, it, it hurt a bit. Uh, and it particularly hurt because well, what they said was true. I was quite young. I did have some growing up to do. I was very shy. I really struggled sort of meeting new people and making conversation. I, d I did have some growing up to do. But faith there with my limitations, uh, there on a letter from the seminary that had just rejected me on my desk, Faced with those limitations, I, I asked a couple of questions. One was, like, what does it take to be used by God? If I want to serve God, if I want to make a difference for Him, what do I need? And the second question was, will God work? Uh, if When I'm so limited, when I'm so weak, will God work in my life, in my family, in my friendships? Will God work to build His church? What do I need to serve God and will God work? These are questions you might ask as you try to serve your family, as you try to live for Jesus in your workplace, as you try to grow in Christ as a witness here. These are also questions that the people of Zechariah's day were asking. Now, last week, we started this book of Zechariah and we saw that the people of, of Israel in Zechariah's day lived in a day of small things. Uh, God's people had lived in Jerusalem, centered in Jerusalem with a temple, which represented God's presence with them. Yet in about 587 BC, Jerusalem had been destroyed, the people had been taken away as captives to Babylon. They'd been there for decades before, in about 538 BC, they started to come back. They were coming home to Jerusalem. They were rebuilding the city, 
rebuilding the temple. It was a day of opportunity, excitement, yet we see it's a day of small things because they returned to a city in ruins. They were rebuilding the temple, but they were faced with much opposition. Uh, There was just, the city was in ruins. There were other neighboring peoples uh, making it hard for them. Even the people working on the temple were losing heart because even if they completed this, it was going to be tiny compared to Solomon's temple, the temple that had been destroyed. It was a day of small things, not living up to their hopes, their expectations, or even what God had promised. And in this day of small things, uh, there were two leaders, uh, two particular leaders over God's people. One was the high priest, Joshua, and one was a governor, uh, a governor called Zerubbabel. And though it was a day of small things, and though both these leaders had their own limitations, uh, though this, these chapters, they can be confusing. Uh, they can be quite confusing and confronting, these pictures and images. What we'll see is that they have a quite simple message. Uh, he was speaking to his people then, uh, telling them, God will build his temple through my two leaders. He's going to speak today assuring us that he is building his church. In the book of Haggai, which is from the same time as Zechariah, um, chapter 2, verse 4, I think really sums up what we'll see today. And Haggai 2, 4 says, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you. God promises He will restore His temple. And restoring the temple was a big deal because the temple was where people's relationship with God was restored. The temple was where God dwelt with His people, but the temple was also where God dealt with their sins as the priests did their work. God dwelt in this temple uh, and it was His presence there was symbolized by uh, particularly a lampstand. Uh, God's, and you might recognize that lampstand. It's still kind of one of the, the symbols for the Jewish people. That's because this lampstand, it represented God's presence there in the temple. As the seven, the seven kind of flames uh, burned, that represented seven, the, perf- the number of perfection in the Old Testament. It re- represented God's perfect presence with them. Particularly the flames might have reminded them of how God had been with His people in the desert, in a pillar of flame, a pillar of fire. Uh, This temple was where God dwelt with His people, represented in this lampstand. Yet as we come to this this time in Zechariah, there were two big problems. One was that there was no temple. It was in ruins and they were struggling to rebuild it. But two is that the priests were defiled. As the temple was where God dwelt with His people, it was also where He dealt with their sin. Because impure people, sinful people, can't stand in the presence of a holy God. It's like He is light and we are darkness. And what happens to darkness in a room when you turn a light on? The darkness is destroyed, right? It's it's gone. We can't stand in the presence of God, yet God had given His people priests in the Old Testament 
saying that through these priests, you can approach me. Uh, They can stand in my presence. They will offer sacrifices so your sin can be forgiven. And you can be my people. You can be in my presence. Yet here, the priests themselves were sinful. Uh, Joshua, the high priest, was a sinner. He was unclean. Yet in this passage, despite these limitations, despite these concerns, God will assure His people that even in a day of small things, with everything against them, God will restore His temple. And He'll do it through His cleansed and commissioned priest and through His Spirit-empowered King. First, He'll do it through a cleansed and commissioned priest. And in chapter 3, verse 1, we're taken to this scene, almost a heavenly courtroom. And the defendant is the high priest, Joshua. And we'll see there's someone accusing him. Chapter 3, verse 1, He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So in this heavenly courtroom, there's a defendant, Joshua, and Satan, which literally means the accuser. Satan, the devil, the one who's at work for evil, the one who tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, He is there accusing Joshua. And the hard thing is that, actually, he's right. Joshua is sinful. Uh, Joshua is unclean. Joshua is unfit to be in God's presence or to serve God's people. But the wonderful thing in this passage is that Joshua doesn't need to defend himself. Joshua doesn't need to minimize his sin. The Lord himself steps in to defend his people. Verse 2, the Lord says to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. God rebukes Satan. God stands for his people. God says, I am with you. I am for you. And it's not because Satan was wrong. Joshua was unclean. He was sinful because God was going to do something about it. He says Joshua is like a, a brand plucked from the fire. When you pull a brand from the fire, it's covered in ash. It's a bit unclean. I think God is explaining here that Joshua has been in exile for decades. He's been in Babylon, so of course he hasn't been able to offer the sacrifices for the forgiveness of sin. He hasn't been able to do the rituals in the temple. Of course he is unclean. Yet there's a problem when even the priests haven't had their sin forgiven, when they haven't been cleansed, how can they bring people to a holy God? Like when a doctor is sick, who does the doctor go to? Or hopefully another doctor. When a priest is unclean, how can they draw near to God and be cleansed? Or another priest, maybe the high priest. But here, there are no priests. Even the high priest is unclean. There's nothing he can do, nothing they can do to make themselves fit for God's presence. But God does something. Um, we, we hear, now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. 
This is amazing. Joshua is unclean. He is sinful. Satan has a point. Yet he doesn't need to defend himself. There's nothing he can do. The Lord himself steps in, says, I'm going to take your sin away. I'm going to take your guilt away. I'm going to cleanse you. And I'm going to clothe you with pure, spotless garments so that you can stand in my presence. He cleanses Joshua. This is a wonderful encouragement, isn't it? I think of the, the words we sang. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Up would I look and see him there. Jesus is the one who makes an end to our sin. Here we see God taking away the sin of his people. Standing in, rebuking Satan. We'll think more about the amazing cleansing that God offers us soon. But here we see that as Joshua is cleansed, he's cleansed for a reason. Because it's not just about cleansing one person, Joshua. God wants to deal with the sin of all his people. So Joshua is cleansed to be commissioned and to resume working as a high priest so that the sin of all God's people can be taken away. Verse 6, the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. Where's God's house? Well, the temple. He says, actually, if you live for me now, because I've cleansed, with, cleansed you, you can work in my temple. Uh, you can again function as the high priest. Uh, verse, he says, I will give you uh, the right of access amongst those who are standing here. This scene, it's in the presence of God with the angels. And God is saying, because I've cleansed you, Joshua, you can stand in my presence. You can function as the high priest uh, so that you can then work so that all the people can have their sin forgiven. He then assures Joshua that he won't be alone in this. Verse 8, hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Now, the branch is a figure that was promised in Jeremiah 23 and 33. And this branch was meant to be a king descended from King David. We'll hear more about the branch, especially next week. Uh, Yet here, Joshua is being assured, you're not alone. You will function as priests, but also I am bringing a king to restore my people. Uh, verse 9, he says, On the stone that I've set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, this is quite confusing, isn't it? What this stone? Uh, some people think it might be a stone that's a part of the temple, if the temple's rebuilt. More likely, though, this stone might be a precious stone or a gem that is a part of the high priest's clothing. Because the high priest, uh, earlier in the Old Testament, uh, went, they were meant to get dressed in special clothing to do their job, especially if they approached uh, this big day called the Day of Atonement, when the people's sin would be forgiven. The high priest was to get dressed in this special uniform. And the uni uniform included some robes, some clean robes, and Joshua has been given them, hasn't he? And a clean turban, and Joshua's already been dressed in that. 
But the final part of the, the priest's clothing uh, was uh, this, this stone or plate. Exodus 28, verse 36. Uh, they were told, make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it as a seal, holy to the Lord. When the priest was fully clothed, he was ready to go in that the people's sin could be dealt with. And here, God is continuing to say, Joshua, I've forgiven you, I've cleansed you, but I'm also commissioning you, I'm restoring you as high priest. You can again stand between me and the people that their sin will be forgiven. And he gives him the final piece, this stone. And having seven eyes, that just might represent God's presence, God's all-seeing presence. And now he's finally clothed. Well, God says, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. The cleansing was never just about Joshua. It was God wanting to cleanse the sin, remove the iniquity of all his people. He'd said that this would happen in the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament. One day when the high priest could enter the presence of God, when the high priest would offer sacrifices and send out the guilt on a goat. If God promises he will again do this, he will again dwell with his people, he will again deal with their sin. And he does it through a priest, a cleansed, commissioned priest. Verse 10, in that day he says, Every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. This will be a day of blessing, of joy, of abundance, where his people live in peace. God is restoring his people. There were limitations. His people were were sinful and unclean. Even his priest was sinful and unclean. Yet before they could do anything about it, God himself stepped in and said, I'm going to take your sin away. God cleansed and commissioned his priest, and he was restoring his temple. And here we get to chapter 4, and we're going to look back to the temple. And we'll see that God is going to restore his temple, and we'll see it through this strange image of the lampstand. Uh, And as I read it, let's think about how this is different to the original lampstand. There was a lampstand back in the original tabernacle, an original temple. Um, It was just the the plain lampstand. So listen out and look for what what is new. Um, 4 verse 1. Oh, verse 2. What do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. So here we have this new expanded uh, lampstand. Um, And luckily, Zechariah seems just as confused as we are. Uh, He asks in verse 4, what are these, my Lord? And then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, no, my Lord. Uh, But God will explain to Zechariah and to us that this lampstand represents the restored temple and everything it represents. Because the restored temple isn't just a building. The restored temple is God's presence, what the lampstand always represented. And God is going to build His temple, restore His temple, and He's going to do it through this leader, Zerubbabel. 
And you can read more about Zerubbabel in, in Haggai, in Ezra, in Nehemiah. But he was the governor of God's people. He was in charge of the building work, the new temple. Uh, he was installed by the, the Persian rulers. And so some people thought that he was compromised. Um, he was Jewish, but actually he'd been installed by the Persian rulers. So was he really for us or was he working for kind of the other government? But importantly, we hear in Ezra that Zerubbabel was descended from David. So while he was a governor in that day, he's actually a king figure. He's descended from the rightful king. And it's through Zerubbabel that we'll see God will rebuild his temple, God will build his kingdom, and he's going to do it through a spirit-empowered king. Verse 6, he says to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Zerubbabel was meant to rebuild the temple, yet he was faced by a mountain of problems. Firstly, there was a literal mountain of rubble, the old destroyed temple, the old city, that needed to be cleared so they can build a new temple. There were mountains of opposition as uh, surrounding peoples opposed. They tried to sabotage the work. Uh, they sent sort of rumors to the Persian rulers uh, trying to make them suspicious of the Jews and stop the work. There was also the mountains of opposition within in just the people were giving up. The people were losing motivation to build. Uh, those of you who've led teams in the past might feel like the mountain before you of trying to get enough volunteers. Uh, we're not sure exactly what this mountain was, but it seems to represent all the opposition, all the problems. Yet, whatever the obstacles to building the temple, God says, who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain Mountains aren't a problem. Obstacles aren't a problem for God. God can flatten them. If He wants to work through His people, He will. Uh, he says, He, Zerubbabel, will bring forward the top stone amidst shouts of grace to it, grace to it. He says, Zerubbabel will finish the temple. He will bring this top stone, this cornerstone, maybe this final stone. Uh, he will complete the temple. Yet, it's not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit. God's going to work through this governor, yet not because of his leadership talent, not because of any power. God says, by my Spirit, I will work. Verse 8, he continues, uh, the, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, the temple. His hands shall also complete it. Then you'll know the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever is despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. It was a day of small things. The work was hard. It might have felt like we're, we're never going to build this temple. We're never going to be restored as God's people. It was a day of small things because even the temple they were working on was small. People knew that even if they completed it, it was going to be tiny compared to Solomon's temple and definitely tiny compared to what God had promised. 
It was disappointing. It was a day of small things. People were losing motivation. People were losing heart. Yet God said, don't lose heart. You who despise the day of small things today, you will rejoice. Because this temple will be completed. I am at work. And he was doing it through a spirit-empowered king. So this lampstand and the vision seems to represent God's temple that he was going to build, he was going to restore. God comes back and explains a couple more parts of this, this vision. First, he says, These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which reigned, eyes of the Lord, which ranged through the whole earth. He's talking about the lights on the lampstand. And where in the original temple, They'd represented God's presence there. He says, they're the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. And it seems to say that actually God will come back, God will dwell in the temple, but this is bigger than the temple. This is about the whole earth. If the Lord is present there, if the Lord is seeing all things there with his eyes, then actually the temple will be the place from which God actually works in the whole earth. The temple is God's presence in our world. And then finally, he turns to these, these two trees. And he says in verse 11, what are these two trees on the right and left of the lampstand? The second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? And he said to me, do you not not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. And then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. God said, these two trees, they represent two anointed ones, literally two sons of oil. God's saying, actually, they represent these two leaders, Joshua and Zerubbabel. I think that's the clearest explanation of that. Uh, God is building his temple and he's going to do it uh, through these two anointed ones uh, by which he, he will build his kingdom. Now, to understand this, we need to remember how this compares with the old lampstand. Uh, the old lampstand stood there without bowl, without, uh, without trees, without pipes. And we're told that it relied on God's people to maintain it, to keep it burning. In Exodus 27, again in in Leviticus 24, God told Moses, you shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light, that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn. In the tent of meeting outside the veil that's before the testimony, Aaron and one of his sons, the priests, shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. So the old lampstand required people to generously bring olive oil every day. It burnt on olive oil, so people needed to bring olive oil to keep it burning. And people did generously. And it relied on the priests constantly working uh, to refill the olive oil, to make sure that it never went out. Yet here we get a vision of a new lampstand. It still runs on olive oil, but this is like renewable energy before its time. This, this lampstand is different because it's plugged in to the olive trees. 
This doesn't need people to bring offerings of olive oil. This doesn't need priests to tend it day by day. This lamp will burn forever because it's plugged into the olive trees. It will keep burning. It will be sustained. And through this picture, God is telling His people that I will build my temple. I will build my kingdom. And it's not by might nor by power, but it's by my spirit. I will build my temple, yet it doesn't rely on your faithful gifts. I will build my temple. It doesn't rely on the faithful service of of priests and other leaders. I will build my temple and I will provide everything it needs. I will sustain it like like it's plugged in. It's got plugged into a power source. And here he says that he's particularly going to work through these two leaders that he's giving. He's working through these two leaders. He'll work through his priest, cleansed and commissioned priest, Joshua, and he'll work through his spirit-empowered king. Because in the end, it's not their power, it's not their strength, it's only because he has cleansed his priests that his priests can serve. It's only because he's empowered his, this governor, this king figure, that he can serve. And God will give them everything they need, and God will restore His temple. That should give the people of Zechariah's day great hope that God can work through them and their limitations, that God will restore His temple. He will again dwell with them and deal with their sin. Yet even as He spoke that in Zechariah's day, He was pointing forward. Because there would be another day of small things. There would be another priest. There would be another spirit-empowered king whom God would work through. In the day of small things, God established the church through His Son, Jesus. 500 years later, there was another day of small things, when all seemed lost, where God's kingdom, God's work seemed defeated. As Jesus, the perfect Son of God, hung rejected, humiliated, dying on a cross. If there was a day of small things, this was it. Yet while it seemed small and shameful, God was doing big and glorious things. On the cross, we see the perfect priest, God's priest, but this priest had no sin of his own. Yet this priest took our sin, he took our stained garments, he took our iniquity and he took it upon himself. And as he took the punishment we deserve, he clothed us with pure garments, he clothed us with his perfection, uh, his spotless robes, his righteousness. On the cross, we also see Jesus, our powerful King, our Spirit-empowered King, He who could move mountains, level mountains by His own word. Yet He who laid down His rights to suffer a humiliating defeat on the cross. This was the ultimate day of small things. Yet it was a day of victory. As God established His church through His perfect priest, His Spirit-empowered King, Jesus Here we see that God established His church, God built His church, and it wasn't on anything we did, but it was because God intervened. God sent His perfect Son 
his priest, his king, from which the church would be built, from which the church would grow, because of which the church will never be defeated. Because Jesus is building his church. It's plugged into him. God is building his church. God has established his church through his perfect priest, his perfect king, Jesus. But we actually see that Joshua and Zerubbabel, as pointing forward to Jesus, they also point forward to us. Because in a day of small things, God will build his church through his cleansed, commissioned, spirit-empowered people. This passage points forward to the cleansing that God offers each of his people. That scene in the heavenly courtroom, Satan accusing the guilt, unworthiness to serve, I think many of us can relate to that. We know that guilt, whether it's Satan, our own thoughts, other people, our past, saying you're not worthy to stand in God's presence. You couldn't serve God. Yet here we're reminded that before we have the chance to defend ourselves, God steps in. It's true. We are sinful. We don't deserve to stand in God's presence. And the amazing thing about the gospel is that we don't need to pretend. We don't need to say, my sin actually isn't that bad. We don't need to pretend that actually, no, we kind of can stand in God's presence. We can own our sin. We can say, Satan, you haven't even listed half my sins. You don't know how great a sinner I am, yet I have a greater saviour. God steps in, God rebuked the accuser, and God stands for us. We can be cleansed because at the cross, well, God took away our filthy garments. He took away our sin. Jesus took away our sin and died the death we deserved. And He did that so that He could clothe us with His perfection, His righteousness, so that we could stand in the presence of God. Uh, like only Jesus deserves to stand. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was clothed with our sin and He stood where we deserve to be, so that we would be clothed in His perfection, His white robes, and we could stand in the presence of God where only Jesus deserves to be. This points forward to our cleansing. If you haven't called on Jesus for forgiveness, this is, this is an invitation that is open to you. Come to Him and He will take away your sin, no matter what you've done, no matter what has happened. He'll clothe you with His perfection, accept you as He accepts His perfect Son. Yet for us who have been cleansed, we're reminded in this passage that we have been cleansed for a reason. We've been cleansed to also be commissioned. Because as we have been cleansed and made God's own people, well, God sends us back out. He calls us His witnesses. He calls us to share this cleansing with others. He's put us in our families, in our workplaces, in our church, in our city. And if God has cleansed you, He's also commissioned you. You are His person in your family. You are His person in your workplace, in this church, in our city. And He wants to work through you. That cleansing is not just about you, as wonderful and glorious it is. 
It's preparing you. It's equipped you to actually serve others, to share that with others. And while this can be overwhelming, this can be confronting, the final thing we're reminded of is that we, his cleansed, commissioned people, are empowered by his spirit. So whatever we do, however we serve, it's not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. There may be many reasons why we feel like, oh, God couldn't work here. He couldn't work through me. Look at the persecution. Look at the division in the church. Look how distracted God's people are. Look how small the church seems and how great the task is. Look how great my sin is. Look at my limitations. Look look at my weaknesses. God says it doesn't rely on you, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. We can sometimes think of our families, maybe our ministry, like that lampstand that we need to keep going. We're like running desperately. I need to bring enough offerings because if I don't keep kind of propping up this family, it's going to fall apart. I need to keep tending to, to this, this small group because if I don't keep putting in everything and holding it up, then the, the fire's going to go out. I need, to keep, I need to keep building the church because if, if I stop, if I take my eyes off, off the ball, then it's all going to fall apart. Yet this picture gives us, gives us a different picture. God is building his church. God is at work. Yet it's not because of our faithfulness. It's not because of our gifts or our experience or our might or our power. The church is plugged into Jesus, the perfect priest, the perfect king, and he is providing the energy. He, by his spirit, is building his church, and his church will grow because it is connected to him. And it's with that confidence that we can go forward and serve. It's with that confidence that we do diligently love and serve our families and our workplaces and our church because we're confident that God is building his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Not by our might, not by our power, but by His Spirit, by Jesus, the perfect priest, the perfect King on whom the church is established, by whom the church will grow, and in whom we have confidence and hope. Brothers and sisters, let's rest in that cleansing. Let's take hold of that commissioning He's given us, and let's serve with confidence, not in our might, our power, but His Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are building your church, that you sent a greater priest, a greater king in the Lord Jesus. Thank you that even the growth of your church doesn't rely on might, power, but your spirit. We do pray you would work powerfully in our friendships, in our families, in our church, in this city, in your world. We beg that you would work powerfully. We beg that you might even work through us. We thank you for the assurance that you are at work. You will build your church, and it's by your spirit. It's in Jesus' great and good name that we pray. Amen.